I'd ask that you would take God's word into your hand this morning as the kids head off to uh, children's worship, continuing into a uh, state of remembrance and celebrating. We open God's word this morning to the book of Romans chapter one, Romans chapter one. We've been in a series that we've entitled the good, the bad and the ugly, a series out of this first chapter of Romans. And for the last five weeks, we have focused in and looked at in depth at Paul's opening greeting to the church in Rome, which allows for a great amount of wealth and insight. And we find ourselves at verses five through seven this morning. So I would invite you to stand as we read from God's word this morning and then pray for God's blessing on our time in his word. I'm going to start in Romans one, starting with the first verse and moving on. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel that he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to the human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through him and for his name's sake, we have received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Father God, we have celebrated the gift of your son this morning. We have remembered what he has done. Father, what we have remembered today, in fact, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he was born of a virgin. That he lived a life of perfection. That he died on the cross for the wickedness of man. That he did not remain in the grave, but he rose again. And he now reigns as our Lord and Savior. For this is the gospel that Paul teaches in the book of Romans. For it is the gospel today that which we will learn and glean from this morning. It is the gospel that brings you glory and honor and praise. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but as I look at this world today, I see a world full of people that are hungry for results. If you think about it, in any facet of your life, there is a desire for us to see results in what we do. We want to see results in our family. We want to see our kids grow up. We want to see our marriages to grow and be healthy and, and uh, be fun-loving and filled with the love that we announce to one another at our marriage ceremony. When we send our kids to school, whether it be preschool all the way up to college, we desire that there be results. Noah is now in preschool, and my desire is, is that he wouldn't just go and learn nothing, but that there would be results. He would learn his ABCs, his one, two, threes. There would be results to that education. We want and desire results when it comes to work. We work with people that long for desires to happen. We're given a project, and we need to get that project done. We have results that we want to see take place. We want to see results when it comes to our sports teams. Sadly... Sadly, one team got done three games too early, and the other team failed to show up for those three games. We want results. You know, I was watching yesterday with great, uh, I was going to call Ray and tell him, better get a message ready. My heart's not right to preach this morning. I watched a group of men with their heads down saying there were no results. What we came to accomplish, we did not. And you know what that creates in the lives of people that are watching that, that are viewing that, is that what happened? You said you were this, you said you were a good team, but we don't see the results. Think about it for a moment this way. Let's say I was to come to you and say that I have this new diet program, this workout regimen that I will tout to you will, will allow you to lose 20 pounds in 20 days. 
And as long as you stick to this plan, you will see results. And I say, just watch me. For the next 20 days, you watch me, and you will see me become lean. You'll begin to see me be able to do things that I never would have been able to do. Pastor Scott had it wrong. You always eat first before you exercise. In fact, eating is one of the greatest exercises that any man could be a part of. I don't know about that biking issue, but you eat. But let's say at the 21st day, you see me, and I am not 20 pounds lighter, but in fact, I am 20 pounds heavier. You see me walking around 21 days later, and I'm out of breath by just walking from point A to point B. And you would say, where are the results? You said that there would be things that would change in you as a result of this. Where are they? Now, we could get mad at the creator of that diet that I would be following, and we could say that the diet is no good. But before we do that, the question we must ask is, was Tim living up to what he was supposed to with that diet? Was he doing the the program as the creator of that diet or that exercise regimen told him to be a part of? Was he eating the foods he was called to eat? Was he exercising when he was supposed to? Was he positioning himself in a way to see results. Sadly, in our world today, we find, especially when it comes to Christianity, that our world looks at Christianity and they say, where are the results? You talk a good game. You say that Jesus Christ changes lives. But when they look at the Christian, when they look at churches, sadly, we see in reports and in surveys that many times unbelievers look at Christians as a little more religious than them and that there's no real change. And what happens is, my friends, we uh, have a world that looks at Jesus and and says, that's the problem. Jesus didn't deliver what he said he would. Christianity is the problem. It says it will bring abundance. It says it will bring joy. It says that it will bring all this happy ever after life. But it doesn't because they look at us and they see no change. My friends, the world around us is asking, you say you believe in Jesus. Where are the results? In our text this morning, we come to, again, another couple verses that speak about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we live today not falling in love with this gospel, not living according to this gospel. We find ourselves just taking a little bit of this and a little bit of that from this gospel and trying to make the best of it. Our motto many times in American Christianity is a little dab of Jesus will do you. And as a result of that, American Christianity is flabby. And it's weak. It has no power. It doesn't change lives. It's not a worthy advertisement for what the world needs to see. And because of that, this brand of Christianity, this brand of Christ following, leaves the world asking, where are the results? You know, it's amazing that we as a church can talk a good game. But you know what? It's not about talk. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20, uh, the Bible tells us, Paul tells the church of Corinth, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. We can't talk just a good game about it. The Cubs could not just go into Arizona and say, well, we are the best team. They had to show up to play the game. And sadly, as Christians, we find ourselves talking a good game. But when the going gets tough and when the rubber meets, needs to meet the road, we find our ministry goes flat. Paul says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, he says, but of power. Let me ask you today, are you empowered by that gospel? Or are you one who just speaks a good game? Sadly, many people think that casual Christianity will do. There are some in our place today who say, you know what? I've got enough Jesus in my life. And that's it. I don't need anything more. That will be enough. But sadly, you don't see the results that you're hoping to. You don't see the victory over sin. You don't see uh, the joy and the peace and the fruits of the Spirit that God gives to all who believe. And you say, why? Where am I missing it? I said the prayer. I signed on the dotted line. I did what I was asked to do. But I don't see the kind of Christianity 
that Paul speaks about in the book of Romans. I want you to ask some questions this morning because Paul does. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, listen to what he says. Now, brothers, in fact, turn there for a moment. I want you to see this for yourself. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2. If you're in the book of Romans, go to your right. One book, 15 chapters in, you'll find 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We have this idea that we just need to make sure we're in the club. Just make sure that we're saved. We've said the prayer. We've rose our hand. We've walked the sawdust trail. And that in itself is Christianity. But Paul says something different. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. Listen to what he says. By this gospel... You are saved. What's that next word there? Let's hear it again. If. Wait a minute, Paul. By this gospel you are saved. And then he adds the word if. Look at what he says. If what? If you hold firmly to the word of God that I preach to you. Look at what he says next. Otherwise you have believed in vain. Casual Christianity says just make sure you have a little Jesus and that's it. Radical Christianity, radical discipleship that Paul is speaking about in Romans chapter 1 is believing and allowing that belief to be seen in obedience. John uh, John tells us that Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I've commanded. Turn to 1 John for a moment. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7. through 7. If you're in Corinthians, keep going to your right. Before the end of the Bible, you will find the small book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. And again, John, the apostle, says casual Christianity will not do because there are no results that come from it. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7 through 7 says the following. This is the message we have heard. What's the message? It's the gospel. That we have heard from him, Jesus, and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Verse 6 says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. You can't claim to be a Christian and then find yourselves living in darkness. Because if we do, the Bible says we lie and we are not truly a part of the family of God. Turn in your Bibles two chapters over to 1 John 3 for a moment. 1 John says again in 1 John 3, verses 6 through 10, no one who lives in him, in Jesus, keeps on sinning. The idea here is a habitual sinning with no regard for what is going on. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous just as Christ is righteous. But he who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Listen to what he says. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and how we know who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Let me just put this, frame this together in this introduction. True And real and authentic Christianity will be producing results. Please hear me. Real and true and growing Christianity will bring forth results. If you're sitting there and you've said, well, I've said the prayer and I've I've, I've been a part of a church, but I don't see what you're saying, I'm going to ask you a very tough question. That you need to go back to when you were saved and ask the question, Have I been saved? Because true salvation brings forth true results. We cannot claim to have God and live like the devil. 
But we must have results that are coming as a result of what are the results that should happen? What must a growing Christian be a part of? What must he do? The first thing we must do is remember the purpose of our deliverance. Remember the purpose of our deliverance. Paul says it right off the beginning in, in Romans 1.1 that radical Christianity is what we must be a part of. He says, I'm a slave. I'm set apart. I'm called. Those aren't casual terms. Those are terms that say, I am passionate about my walk with Jesus Christ. How can we begin to see results unless we know what the results are supposed to look like? There are a lot of people who think the results of Christianity are a fat pocketbook. That the results of Christianity are good health. That they are happy days ahead of you. Sadly, that is not what the Bible teaches about true and vibrant Christianity. You know, we've lost our idea of what the gospel is all about. And we've got all these preachers on TV and over the radio who who say that we should have this or that as a Christian. And nowhere is that seen in the scriptures And that's a reason why our churches are in disarray. They've lost sight of God's word in the gospel. And they've lost their moral compass on all types of issues. We sit there and we say, how can mainline denominations that preached the gospel a generation ago be ordaining homosexuals in open sin to pulpits? How can they do that? They have forgotten the gospel. How can we allow churches that have pastors who get up and say there's no absolute truth? We're not sure what the Bible means on this. It's just a story. It's just little anecdotes. My friends, they've lost their moral compass because the Bible is the living and active Word of God and we must do what it says instead of trying to make it out something that it's not. The key phrase in this first point is the word remember. If you look throughout the Old Testament, you will see time and time again where people forgot the goodness of God. The people of Israel, after they leave Egypt, not soon after leaving Egypt, begin to murmur. Why? Because the Bible says, Moses tells us, that they have forgotten the deliverance out of Egypt from their slavery. The Bible tells us that later on, um, after Joseph had ascended to be prime minister of Egypt, that the next Pharaoh forgot the goodness of Joseph's God. And what does he begin to do? He persecutes God's chosen people. You know what happens when we forget the gospel of Jesus Christ? When we forget the goodness of God, we will fall to sin. If you have forgotten how you came to know Christ, if you have forgotten what God has done for you, then I will say you are one step closer to falling to sin, and you may not even know it. So what is the gospel there for? It is the purpose of our deliverance. We see three things in regards to this purpose this morning. First of all, when we see the gospel, Paul says first and foremost, God receives glory. God receives glory. Look at verse 5 of Romans 1. He says that this gospel that came is through him. Through who? In verse 4 it says, Jesus Christ our Lord. And what does it say then? And for his name's sake. After Paul speaks about the gospel in verse, in the first five verses, he tells us in verse five that it's all about him. God should receive glory because of the gospel. Listen, the gospel can only happen through Jesus Christ. It is through him, Paul says, and for his name's sake. Jesus is the only one who could accomplish what we need. When it comes to salvation. But look at what Paul says. It is for his namesake. What that means is the gospel is not man-centered. The gospel, please hear me this morning, is not about you and I. It is about God. We have this idea that the gospel is all about us. That we are so stinking special that God had to do something for us. God had to do nothing for us except send us to hell. It's all about God. God is the star of the show. He is the one because the Bible says for his namesake, which stresses the fact that the gospel brings glory and honor to God. Understand this salvation. Ultimate goal. Salvation's ultimate goal is the proclamation of the glory of God. It is not the redeeming of mankind. Man's salvation is important. I agree with you. But it is simply a byproduct of the grace of God because the main focus of our salvation should always be the glory of God. 
The psalmist says, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. Folks, this is the greatest understanding that we must have when it comes to the gospel work. The gospel is intended to accomplish the salvation of souls, but above that it is the object of the glory of our Redeemer because it expresses to us the greatness of who has saved us. The second thing we see is that it allows us to receive grace. Once we understand that God receives the glory, it allows us to receive grace through Him and for His name's sake, we have received grace. Now God's grace is unmerited. God's grace is undeserved. A believer could not go back. I cannot go to you and say that I accomplished anything that put me in a better position than anyone else to receive salvation. It is unmerited. It is undeserved. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, a generation ago once said, Love that gives upward is worship. Love that goes outward is brotherly affection. But love that stoops is called grace. Before the foundations of the earth, the Lord stooped to humanity and gave grace. This is the first time this word grace is spoken of in the book of Romans. It will occur in verse 7 and then 22 more times in the whole book. But what does that mean for us today? We as a church would agree. It's unmerited and it's undeserved favor. But let me tell you this. Please hear me this morning. Grace is far more than that. Because when we have a proper view of our depravity, of our sinfulness, then grace is deeper and richer than anything we could ever imagine. Because if we believe, as the Bible teaches, that man in his sinful state is rebellious, is stubborn, is hostile towards God, then the grace that God shows us, His favor and His love and His mercy, is given to those who, ex- uh, who ex- should expect the exact opposite. God gives grace. We deserve hell. We don't even deserve, listen to me, a chance to even hear the gospel, let alone experience the saving work of Christ. We deserve as sinners bondage. Instead, we are given tools of grace for victory over sin. We deserve his wrath. We deserve his fierce condemnation. Yet instead of wrath, we find Jesus Christ being hung on a cross and taking the penalty of our sin. Now he lives to rule over us. There's no doubt that Paul was thinking of his own conversion experience when he wrote the book of Romans. He says, I was self-righteous. I was cruel. I put down Stephen, a man set apart for the gospel of Christ, and I called for his murder. I was a fighter against God. I was trying to destroy the work of God. And God, all he owed me was hell. And yet he saved me. Let the grace of God never be away from our minds. We deserve everything of God's anger and judgment. But God doesn't just give unmerited favor and grace. He gives it to those who should expect the opposite. The third thing we see is that God gives gifts. He gives gifts. Look at what he says. He says, through him and for his name's sake, we have received grace and apostleship. Well, what does he mean by apostleship? We're not apostles. Paul's the apostle. The other 12 were the apostles. How can we have apostleship? Are we all apostles? Should we go around and say, Apostle Tim and Apostle Ray and Apostle Keith? No, that's, that's not what Paul is talking about. We don't hold the office of apostle. In fact, in the New Testament, if you were to look at the word apostle, you would see it a couple different times. First of all, we see it in Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in a heavenly calling, fix your thoughts On Jesus, what is he called? The apostle and high priest of whom we confess. In Romans 16, 7, greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. Luke calls Barnabas an apostle in Acts 14, 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and began shouting. Think about this. All these men are not a part of the twelve. Jesus is not an apostle, as we know of the apostles in Scripture. Adronicus and Junius, Barnabas, these aren't. But what is Paul saying? We have received an opportunity because of the grace of God 
to be sent out. The word apostle in the Greek literally means to be sent forth with a message. Now, there's no question that Paul's apostleship is unique. But what Paul is telling us is we are now to be sent out. Why? Because God deserves glory and because we have received grace. Here I am, a sinner. God saves me and God deserves glory for the mercy and grace that he has shown me. So what does God give me? He gives me the opportunity to go out and articulate the greatness of his message, the greatness of his person, the greatness of his son, Jesus Christ. How does he do that? He does that by giving us gifts. He didn't say, Tim, I want you to go preach the message of the gospel and good luck. Go to Walmart and try to find the tools to be able to take care of that. No, he has all throughout my life moved me and changed me and given me the gifts to to do what I am to do today. And that is not just for me, nor is it for the staff members of this church, but it is for all of us. God has given us everything that we need to accomplish bringing God glory and living out the life of grace that God has given us. But sadly, what we find ourselves doing is we say, we got the grace, now we will sit on the sidelines. We got our fire insurance, so we'll just hang out, maybe go to church every couple weeks and, and be lackluster even when we're there. That's not what brings God glory. What brings God glory is that when we receive God's grace, we give Him the glory and say, to God be the glory, great things He has done, and I will announce that to all who will listen. And I will do that, not in my own strength, but in the strength of Almighty God, with the gifts that He's given. Do you remember your salvation? Do you remember the grace that God has shown you? This grace is the motivation of all that we do. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that the love of Christ is what compelled him to be the apostle that he was. Does the grace of God, does the glory of God compel you, compel you to take the word to the world? Well, that brings us to a second point, and that is every growing Christian must not just remember the purpose of their deliverance, but they must respond with a passion to declare the gospel. We must respond with a passion to declare the gospel. This dovetails into what I've been talking about already I'm compelled to announce the gospel, Paul says. But listen to what he says. Through him and for his namesake, in verse 5, we have received grace and apostleship. To do what, Paul? Why do we have this gift? It is to call people from all Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Paul uses this word call. We are to call people. What does that mean, Paul? Other translations, the Amplified Bible says, we are to promote among all the Gentiles. The ESV is to bring about to all the Gentiles. The NET Bible says, we are to bring people to the obedience that comes from faith. The New Living Translation says, we are to tell. What are we to tell? The Bible says, the obedience that comes. Now, if we have been shown grace, who are we to tell it to? The text says we are to tell it to all among the Gentiles. We don't use words like that. Well, I'm going to go amongst all the Gentiles. What does Paul mean by all the Gentiles? The answer is found in the original Greek word there. The word Gentiles comes from the Greek word ethnos. Ethnos, which is where we get our English word ethnic. Who are we to be telling? Literally what it means is we are to be telling the nations We are to be calling the nations to the gospel. We are to be sharing that fact with all. Jesus shares this when it comes to the Great Commission. He says, go into all the world and to tell all the nations, teaching them and baptizing them about who Jesus Christ is. So who is this declaration to be shared with? This declaration is to be shared with all people. Write that in your outlines. It is to be shared with all people. Let me remind you of something, Village Bible Church. We can never, we can never allow racism. We can never allow sexism. We can never allow cultural status. We can never allow uh, for people that look different than us, who smell differently than us, who act differently than us. Nothing can stop us. Please hear me. Nothing can stop us. From sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says we are to tell all people, whether they're black, whether they're white, whether they're Asian, whether they're Arab, 
whether they serve your God or not, whether they are rich or poor, whether they are polite or adversarial, whether they are Republican or Democrat, whether they are educated or uneducated, whether they are your family, your friends, or perfect strangers on the side of the street. Jesus articulates all throughout his uh, life on earth that we are to declare it to all the world. In fact, Paul said that in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands that all people everywhere repent. Who are we to take the gospel to? This gospel that Paul says we are called as apostles to go out and share, we are to take it to every person. It just doesn't involve the Sugar Grove area or the state of Illinois. It involves the nation of America, but not only America, but to the uttermost parts of the world. This is why we hire a guy like Scott. We hire a guy like Scott to be a, a catalyst for pushing us and to equip us to go to the outermost parts of the world. We don't send Scott to go do those things or just our missionaries to go do those things, but we send ourselves. Why? Because the people in far off lands are just important to Jesus as the neighbor next door. And we don't just send people all across the world to do that, but we make sure that in our mission statement we have the words to love our neighbors to the point of action. Do you have that kind of passion for the gospel? Casual Christianity says, well, it works for me, but that doesn't mean it has to work for you. Let me tell you something. Christianity is the only thing that will work for sinners. But what does that mean we must do? We must share it properly. Write that down. It must be shared properly. It says to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Paul, what are you talking about here? The obedience that comes from faith. As I said before, we are a people, we are a culture that has lost uh, the the, um, pedestal by which God's word should be placed. We have forgotten the importance of the gospel. But not only the importance of the gospel, but the essence of the gospel. We have forgotten what the gospel says, what it means. We make the gospel synonymous. Please hear me, and this may upset some of you. We made the gospel anonymous with you accepting Jesus. Now, you may say it's merely semantics, but it is not Jesus whom we accept. It is Jesus who, in fact, accepts us. Jesus isn't one amongst many that we go in like we go and pick a dog out of the pound and say, I like this one. I pick you. No, it is in fact God who goes to the pound of sinful humanity and says, I call you because I love you. Because my grace allows me to bring you into my family. But what do we say? We have churches that sell Jesus. Hey, Jesus will do this for you. Hey, Jesus will do that for you. So raise your hand. Sign on the dotted line. Come forward. But notice Paul says nothing about that when it comes to the gospel. Why? There's a great place for an altar call there, Paul. Why don't you do an altar call? Here's the gospel. Now come forward. He doesn't say that. What does he say? Look at He says the gospel leads to one word, obedience. Say that with me. Obedience. The gospel is not just a profession. It is a life of obedience. And we have a lot of people, in fact, as I've shared a couple of weeks ago when I talked about what is a Christian, Barna said that 50% of Americans say they are Christians. Where's the obedience? And that's why the world says, well, what's so big about Christianity? It doesn't change who we are. But Paul says it is obedience. That is the result. The result of gospel, the gospel is obedience. Understand this. In the New Testament, in the New Testament, the stupid thing keeps falling off my ear. In the New Testament, the gospel is never given as an opportunity. Hey, think about it. The Bible says throughout the New Testament, any time you can look it up, any time that the gospel is declared, it is said, you are to do this. Repent. It is a command. Stop living the way you're living and stop living or start living for Christ. The gospel message is a command, not an option. 
And it is a command that doesn't mean just today when you're sitting in your pew saying, that's a great message, Tim. I guess I'll agree with you, so I'll raise my hand at the end of the message and I'll accept Jesus. It is not just that. And that's why we are very careful when we proclaim the gospel here. You'll hear the gospel in every message that we preach at Village Bible Church. Why? Because the gospel is important. You'll hear of man's uh, God's holiness. You'll hear about man's sinfulness. You'll hear Jesus Christ elevated as the only Savior who can take away our sins. You'll hear all that. But what you will also hear is, if you're going to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, it will mean you will lose your life. Why? Because Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you must deny me and take up my cross. It's not just about a prayer. It's about a lifelong pursuit of obedience. This obedience is produced. Literally, this word obedience, Paul says, is is the word hear, meaning listen, and under. It's a weird, uh, complex putting together of two words, to hear and to be placed under. What it means is we hear the gospel, we hear the command, and we submit ourselves to what has been shared with us. In fact, Paul in Romans 6, six chapters later, says you will fall in one of two camps. You will either be one who is a slave to sin, or Paul says you will be a slave to righteousness. You're going to submit yourself under one of two things, sin or righteousness. The believer who professes to be a believer is going to find themselves a whole lot more as a slave of righteousness than ever a slave to sin. In fact, James says, and James, turn for a moment to James chapter 2 for a moment. In the back of your Bible, you'll find the book of James. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. I'm going to read this quickly. Let's see what James says. He's telling the church that is dispersed amongst the nations... He says this, James chapter 2, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about the physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, Listen to what James says. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? He goes to the Old Testament. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for, the, uh, for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now you may say, Tim, you've gone back to the Roman church. You're saying that my deeds save me. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not going to put a robe on and a collar and divorce Amanda and become celibate. This is not Roman Catholic teaching. But this is something because of Roman Catholic teaching that we find ourselves getting away from. And we say works has nothing to do with salvation. Yes, it does. We are justified freely by grace. It is unmerited. Please hear me. This may be elementary to you, but I believe it's something we must hear justified freely by God's grace. We don't deserve it. And it's not based on what we do. For by grace you are saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the free gift of God, not by works that any man could boast. You can't work 
hard enough to get your salvation. It is by the free gift of God. But that free gift of God that God has given you, that He implants within you, is going to produce something. God has now put into the ground a seed called the Holy Spirit. He's put that Holy Spirit within the ground of your heart, and He says, I am going to produce something out of it. So if you say you have faith, you say you've been justified, then you are going to see a life that is living for Christ. That is what James is saying. Saving faith is a faith that works. And if we understand that, then we will know that when he says, for by grace you are saved through faith, it's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works that any man could boast. And then he goes on, and what does he say? For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works that he has prepared for us in advance to do. What we forget, we love Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's, it's good, it works for us. We don't like Ephesians 2, 10. Because that means that we've got to do something. We've got to change who we are. We have to live differently. My friends, be careful that you don't go and try to sell Jesus to people and make sure they sign on the dotted line. You get them to pray that sinner's prayer. There is a place where we confess Christ, yes. But when you share the gospel with your friends and your neighbors and your loved ones and those strangers that you run into, you tell them about the holiness of God. You tell them about the sinfulness of man. You tell them that Jesus is the only answer. You articulate that aspect of the gospel, but the gospel leads to something, and we forget about that. I've been teaching my son at four and a half years old, not just to pray a prayer that he accepts Jesus in his heart and then everything's all good. I say, if you love Jesus, Noah, you will obey what he says. And if you don't obey what he says, then it will prove that you do not love Jesus. And that's something we miss in evangelical Christianity today because we just want him to say, hey, uh, they're saved. Let's move on. Teach people obedience. The obedience that comes from saving faith. Does that make sense this morning? Let's move on. Once we have articulated the gospel properly, the Bible tells us we need to move on. And what does that lead us to? It leads us to a great importance, and that is once we understand how to share the gospel properly, once we've articulated and understood the purpose of our deliverance, it leads us to recognize the privileges that bring forth our delight. That bring forth our delight. You say, Tim, heavy message. It's about me working. It's about me changing things. The Bible says that the grace of God has appeared to all men in Titus chapter 2. And it tells us as Christians, if we have seen the grace of God, it tells us we are to say no to sin and no to worldly passions and to follow Christ. So what does that lead us to? Let me tell you something. It leads to something wonderful. When we speak of the Lordship of Christ, many people will say, Tim, you have made Jesus out to be a wicked taskmaster. He's not the Jesus that I see in my children's illustrated Bible where he's bringing the children to him and he's smiling and he's loving everybody and just come and hang out because you know what I see? I see that Jesus. And that's the Jesus of grace. That he looks at me in my sin. He looks at me with all my dysfunctions and he says, come, Tim. Just like Scott was talking about during our communion time. Come. I love you. But we must remember that Jesus says we must submit. Jesus says we must have obedience, be obedient. But how does that fit within the love of God? How does that fit with what Paul's going to say in verses 6 and 7? My father was a loving father. But let me tell you something. My father, even to this day, there is no compromise with my father. Not that he's stubborn, but my father knows that he is my father. And there is obedience. Now, that obedience is a little less because I'm my own adult. But when I was a child, it was obey dad or expect consequences. Now, could I look at my dad and say, dad, you're a wicked man. You're a wicked, wicked man because you tell me I can't do this, can't do that or the other thing. Or could I look at my father and say he loves me. And he's put these rules into play. He's called me to obey him and to submit to him and to respect him. Why? Because he's some megalomaniac that says, I'm Tim's dad, la, 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 hear me roar. Or is it because he says, I love my son and I want him to live a life that produces fruit for Jesus Christ. And you know what it was? That's what it was. So when my father said, Tim, you know, probably not a good idea to do this and that, I need to listen. 
And I just say, thank you, Father, for loving me enough to put those parameters in my life. You know what comes as a result of that when we obey Jesus? Look at what he says in verses 6 and 7. I will quickly move through these. In verses 6 and 7, we see, first of all, one of the first privileges is that we belong to God. We belong to God. When you live a life of obedience that comes from faith, you're going to know one thing, and that is you belong to God. We talk about the assurance of our salvation. One of the biggest questions I hear from people is I don't feel like I'm a Christian. I don't feel like Jesus is in there. God seems distant to me. And one of the first things I tell all those people is, one, it's not based on feeling. Don't base your Christian walk on your feeling because the devil will destroy your feelings in a second. Don't base everything on feelings. The second question is, look at your obedience. And one of the first things I will tell that individual after I've said those two things is I will say to them, it seems odd that the Bible paints out the picture that the pagan will never ask their question about their relationship with God. And if you're worried about the assurance of salvation in your life, you're asking the right question. And usually pagans don't ask those questions. They're more worried about themselves. So when you ask, I don't feel like I'm close to God, ask the question, am I obeying God? Am I living to do all that I can for Christ? If you're doing that and you're asking that question, then I can tell you for sure that you belong to God. This belonging literally is the word kletos, which is called, we saw that in verse 1, it literally means that you are invited to a banquet and all that it involves. God throws a party. He says, you belong to me. Come and be a part of it. The next thing we see is that you're beloved by God. He says in verse six or verse seven, to all in Rome who are loved by God. Notice he doesn't say to all in Rome who love God. He doesn't say to all in Rome who are Christians. He says to all in Rome who are loved by God. Ken Hughes, when he speaks about the love of God, he speaks about John three sixteen. I want to go through this. I hope you understand this because he ponders the love of God by looking at John three sixteen, and this is how he breaks it down. He says, for God is the ultimate lover. So loved is the greatest degree. The world is the greatest company. That he gave is the greatest act. His only begotten son, which is the greatest gift. That whosoever, which is the greatest opportunity, believes the greatest simplicity. In him, the greatest attraction. Should not perish the greatest promise. But the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. When you live a life of obedience that comes from faith, every one of those words are true because you are beloved by Almighty God. This church is loved by God because we are His bride. Next we see we become saints. Verse 7 says, we are loved by God. And called to be saints. Paul doesn't say that we're born as saints. Nor does he say we become saints through our own power. But he says we're called saints. Men and women are first, listen to me, beloved by God. And then we become saints. We are not called because we are saints. But we are called because we are loved. And as a result of that calling, that apostleship, we are called to be saints that articulate something different than what the world articulates. Finally, we are showered with His blessings. Look at what He says at the end of verse 7. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. This word peace, we've talked about grace. This word peace literally is a settled spirit amidst the times of life that are stormy. A peace that is able to weather times of great pain and turmoil. A peace that contrasts the time of war that we had with our God in heaven before we came to know Christ. A life of obedience, folks, is a life that experiences the blessing of God in the face of danger. Let me close with this story and then I will pray. There's a story of a wealthy man who possessed vast treasures of arts and possessions. The man had only one son who was an ordinary boy. The child passed away in his adolescence and had little effect on anyone. The father greatly mourned his son's death, though he did it alone. Within a few months after the death of his son, the father died as well. 
He stipulated that in his will that all his possessions and treasures were to be auctioned. And strangely enough, he added one particular caveat that one picture must be auctioned off first. It was the painting of his son, which was done by an artist that no one knew. The auctioneer, in accord with the man's wishes, directed the assembled crowd to the painting of the rather obscure son of this wealthy and popular man. He started the bidding there. And since no one knew the boy or the artist, the bidding was silent. After a long time had passed without any bid at all, an old man who had been a servant in the house of the wealthy man came forward and said he would like to place a $1 bid on the portrait. He wanted to buy the painting because he had learned to love the son very much. At this point in his life, however, a dollar was all that he had. There was no doubt someone would outbid him. So he placed the dollar down and he said, what may come, may come. There were no other bids, for no one had this kind of care and concern for the son. And the dramatic moment happened when the gavel hit the table that said the bidding was over. It was then the auctioneer gave the great announcement that read the next part of the will. It said, all the rest of my treasures that are here for this auction shall go to the one who has loved my son enough to purchase his portrait. And a man who had nothing to give gained the treasures of the world. I don't know about you, but when you love the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and put your trust in Jesus Christ and say, God, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus in my life. And because of that, I'm going to live a life of gratitude and I'm going to make my pursuit in life, everything I do, centralized on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That if He says go, I'll go. If He says jump, I'll jump. If He says serve, I'll serve. If you make that your desire and you say that in your heart at this moment in this place and you live that out and show the validity of that profession in your walk with your Savior, then the vast treasures of the world and beyond that, the vast treasures of heaven will be at your disposal because God loves you and He cares for you and He has called you out of darkness to bring you into His wonderful light. Let's pray. Father God, we love You. We love You because You first loved us. And Lord, I pray that because of that love that You have shown us, that grace that You have bestowed on us, that because of that, we will live lives of obedience. Father, it's not enough for us just to believe, but it must be a belief that moves us to action. So Lord, I pray for us as a church, I pray for us as followers of You, that we will not be casual in our walk. But if we love You, and we say that we love You, we will obey Your commands. Father, I pray for those who are struggling today with obeying your commands. Lord, that they would find victory, that they would go to you and say, You are my Lord, you are my boss, you are my king, and I will listen and follow you. Even if that means I must say no to the pleasures of this world, I will follow you. To the one who is out there, Father, today who has never trusted you as their Savior, that they will know this is not just a moment in their life, but this is a moment that changes their life forevermore. And Lord, that they would deny themselves and take up the cross. That they would follow you with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their strength. And in doing so, that they would receive the greatest assurance that they are beloved by God, they are belong to God, that they have become saints, and the blessings of God now shower them because you love your people. This gospel is not about us. It is for your glory, for your honor, and for your praise. Let us live lives that declare your glory, your honor, and praise to the world around us, that they will see the results of what true and vibrant lives changed by Christ are really about. Let us show the results that can change the world around us because they will see Jesus Christ and they will see Him in the power of Almighty God. Amen.